Welcome back to the Heming Brainiac List pod, talking about chapter 4.1 of Hail and Farewell. BYR discussion prompts. Techrific says, I can neither make heads nor tails of George. One minute he's chastising the Irish for having no thought and no literature. The next is encouraging the revival movement. Is he a complete nihilist that participates in this movement to ease his boredom, or is he bipolar or something? I just don't get where he's coming from. It's bewildering as to why he's part of a movement for a cause he seems to judge so harshly and doubt the fruitfulness of. Swim says, I believe George would be absolutely delighted in your comment. He likes to rile people up. I just rolled my eyes at this passage. The passage, not um, Techrific's passage. The passage that Techrific quoted, uh, which I omitted from my reading. Swim says, Ander, the show you referenced yesterday was called The Dig. In the late 1930s, wealthy landowner Edith Pretty hires an amateur archaeologist Basil Brown to investigate the mounds on her property in England. His team discovers a ship from the Dark Ages while digging up a burial ground. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed that film too. What's the... um? Oh, digging history England show. Um, nope. <laughs> that was a pretty random search. I did say I would find out what it was called, but I can't. It's not not called digging for Britain. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, all right. Well. Let us keep reading. Sorry, I distracted myself. I remembered as I was reading your comments, Swim, that I did say I would um, look up the name of the show that my mum has been binge-watching, but um, I didn't do it. Anywho, keeping reading. Here we go. Traditions are often more truthful than scripts, A.E. said, and believing in this as in everything, he says, I walked around the Cromlech three times praying, and when my devotions were finished... I returned to A.E. who was putting the last touches to a beautiful drawing of the altar, a little nervous lest he should question me as to the prayers I had offered up. But instead of groping in anyone's religious belief, A.E. talks sympathetically of gods ascending and descending in many coloured spirals of flame. And of the ages before men turned from the reading of earth to the reading of scrolls and of the earth herself to the origin of all things, and the miracle of miracles, A.E. is extraordinarily forthcoming, and while speaking on a subject that interests him, nothing of himself remains behind. The revelation is continuous, and the belief imminent that he comes of divine stock, and has been sent into the world on an errand. I watched him packing up his pastels, and we went together to the warrior's grave at the other end of the field, and stood by it, wondering in the beautiful summer weather what his story might be. And then my memory disappears. It emerges again some miles further on, for we were brought to a standstill by another puncture, and this second puncture so greatly stirred A.E.'s fears, lest the gods did not wish to see me on the top of their mountain, that it was difficult for me to persuade him to go into the cottage for a basin of water. At last he consented, and while he worked hard, heaving the tyre from off the wheel with many curious instruments, Sorry, with many curious instruments, which he extracted from a leather pocket behind the saddle of his machine. I talked to him of Ireland, hoping thereby to distract his attention from the heat of the day. It was not difficult to do this, for A.E. like Dujarin can be interested in ideas at any time of the day or night, though 
The sweat paused from his forehead and I could see that he was listening while I told him that we should have room to dream and think in Ireland when America had drawn from us another million and a half of the population. Two millions is the ideal population for Ireland and about four for England. Do you know, A.E., there could not have been more than two million people in England when Robin Hood and his merry men haunted Sherwood Forest? How much more variegated the world was then. At any moment one might come upon an archer who had just split a willow wand distant a hundred years distant a hundred yards, or upon charcoal burners with their fingers and thumbs cut off for shooting deer, or jugglers standing on each other's heads in the middle of sunlit interspaces. A little later on the fringe of the forest the wayfarer stops to listen to the hymn of pilgrims on their way to Canterbury. Oh, how beautiful is the world of vagrancy lost to us forever, A.E. There's plenty of vagrancy still in Ireland, he answered, and we spoke seriously of the destiny of the two countries. As England had undertaken to supply Ireland with hardware, he would not hang the Paul Cloud of Wolverhampton over Dandalk. The economic conditions of the two countries are quite different, he said, and many other interesting things which would have gladdened Plunkett's heart, but my memory curls and rushes into darkness at the word economic, and a considerable time must be have elapsed, for we were well on our way when I heard my own voice saying, Will this hill never cease? We're going to Slivgullion. True for you, I said, for at every half mile the road gets steeper, which I suppose is always the case when one is going towards a mountain. But despite the steepness, which should have left no doubt upon his mind, A.E. was not satisfied that we were in the right road, and he jumped off his bicycle to call a man who left his work willingly to come to our assistance, whether from Irish politeness or because of the heat of the day. I'm still in doubt. As he came towards us, his pale and perplexed eyes attracted my attention. They recalled to mind the rat-like faces with the long upper lip that used to come from the mountains to Moor Hall, with banknotes in their tall hats, a little decaying race in the breeches, worsted stockings and heavy shoon, whom our want was to despite, because they could not speak English. Now it was the other way round. I was angry with this little fellow because he had no Irish. His father, he said, was a great Irish speaker, and he would have told us the story of the decline of the language in the district if A.E. had not suddenly interrupted him with questions regarding the distance to Slivglin. If it's to the tip-top you're thinking of going, about another four miles, and he told us we would come upon a cabin about half a mile up the road, and the woman in it would mind our bicycles while we were at the top of the hill, and from her house he had always heard that it was three miles to the top of the mountain, that, how, that was how he reckoned it was four miles from where we stood at the lake. He had never been to the top of Slivgullion himself, but he had heard of the lake from those that had been up there, and he thought that he had heard of Finn from his father, but he disremembered if Finn had plunged into the lake after some beautiful queen. Those who have lived too long in the same place become melancholy, a.e. let him emigrate. He was, has forgotten his Irish and the old stories that carried the soul of the ancient Gael right down to the present generation. I'm afraid, a.e., that ancient Ireland did, died, at the beginning of the 19th century and beyond hope of resurrection. A. was thinking at that moment, if the peasant had directed us rightly and impatient for an answer, I continued, can the dreams, the aspirations and traditions of the ancient Gael be translated into English? And being easily cast down, I asked if the beliefs of the ancient Gael were not a part of his civilization and have lost all meaning for us. That would be so, A. E. answered. 
If truth were a casual thing of today and tomorrow, but men knew that great truth thousands of years ago, and it seems to me that these truths are returning and that we shall soon possess them, not perhaps exactly as the ancient Gale. I hope that you are right, for all my life is engaged in this adventure, and I think you are right and that the ancient Gale was nearer to nature than we have ever been since we turned for inspiration to Galilee. The fault I find with Christianity is that there is no more than a code of morals, whereas three things are required for a religion, a cosmogony, a psychology, and a moral code. I'm sure you're right, A.E., but the heat is so great that I feel I cannot push the bicycle up the hill any further. You must wait for me till I take off my drawers, and behind a hedge I rid myself of them. You were telling me that the dreams and inspirations and visions of the Celtic race have lost none of their ancient power, and they descend from generation to generation. I don't think they have, and I listen to him telling how these have crept through dream after dream of the manifold nature of man, and how each dream, heroism or beauty, has laid itself nigh the divine power it represents. Deidre was like Helen. It went to my heart to interrupt him. But the heat was so great that to listen to him with all my soul, I must rid myself of the rest of my hosiery, and so, once more, I retired behind a hedge, and returning with nothing on my moist body but a pair of trousers and a shirt, I leaned over the handlebars, and by putting forth all my strength, mental as well as physical, contrived to reach the cottage. We left our bicycles with the woman of the house, and started for the top of the mountain. The spare, scant fields were cracked and hot underfoot, but A.E. seemed unaware of any physical discomfort, Miraculously, sustained by the hope of reaching the sacred lake, he hopped over the walls dividing the fields like a goat, though these were built out of loose stones, every one as hot as if it had just come out of the fire, and I heard him say, as I fell back exhausted among some brambles, that man was not a momentary seeming, but a pilgrim of eternity. What is the matter, Moore? Can't you get up? I am unbearably tired, and the heat is so great that I can't get over this wall. Take a little rest, and then you'll be able to come along with me. No, no, I'm certain that today it would be impossible all the way up that mountain. A long struggle over stones and through heather. No, no, if a donkey or a pony were handy, he conjured me to rise. It is very unfortunate, for you will see Finn, and I might see him too, whether in the spirit or in the flesh I know not, and having seen him, we should come down from that mountain different beings that I know, but it's impossible. Get up, I tell you to get up, you must get up. A lithe figure in grey clothes and an old brown hat bade me arise and walk. His shining grey eyes were filled with all the will he had taught himself to concentrate when, after a long day's work at Pym's as an accountant, he retired to his little room and communicated with Weeks and Johnson, though they were miles away. But, great as the force of his will undoubtedly is, he could not infuse in me enough energy to proceed. My body remained inert, and he left me, saying that, alone, he would climb the mountain, and I saw him going away, and the gritty and grim mountain showing aloft in ugly outline upon a burning sky. Going to see Finn, I murmured, and had strength, I would sit with him by the holy lake waiting for the vision, but I may not. He'll certainly spend an hour by the lake, and he will take two hours to come back, and all that time I shall sit in a baking field where there is no shade to speak of. 
I had struggled into a hazel copse, but my feet were burnt by the sun and my tongue was like a dry stick. The touch of the hazel leaves put my teeth on edge and remembering that A.E. would be away for hours, I walked across the field towards the cottage where we had left our bicycles. May I have a drink of water? I asked, looking over the half door. Two women came out of the gloom, and after talking between themselves, one of them asked, wouldn't I rather have a drop of milk? A fine-looking girl with soft grey eyes and a friendly manner. The other was a rougher, an uglier sort. I drank from the bowl, and could have easily finished the milk, but lifting my eyes, suddenly I caught sight of a flat-faced child with flaxen hair, all in curl, watching me, and it occurring to me that, at that moment, that it might be his milk I was drinking. I put down the bowl, and my hand went to my pocket. How much is the milk? You're heartily welcome to it, sir, the young woman answered. Sure, it was only a sup. No, I must pay you. But all my money had been left in the dundog, and I stood penniless before these poor people, having drunk their milk. My friend will come from the mount to fetch his bicycle, and he will pay you again. The young woman said I was welcome to the milk, but I didn't know that A.A. had any money upon him, and it occurred to me that to offer her my vest and drawers. She said she couldn't think of taking them, eyeing them all the while. At last she took them and asked me to sit down and take the weight off my limbs. Thank you kindly, and sitting on a proffered stool, I asked if they were Irish speakers. Himself, mother can speak it, and I turned towards the old woman who sat by the ashes of a peat fire, her yellow hands hanging over her knees, her thick white hair showing under a black knitted cap, her eyes never left me, but she made no attempt to answer my questions. She's gone a little bothered lately, and I wouldn't know what you'd be asking for. I could make nothing of the younger woman, the child, and the grandmother only stared. It was like being in a den with some shy animals, so I left a message with them for A.E. that I would bicycle on to Dundalk very slowly, and hoped... He would overtake me, and it was about two hours after he came up with me, not a bit tired after his long walk, and very willing to talk, tell me how he had to rest under the rocks on his way to the summit, enduring dreadful thirst, for there was no rill, all were dry, and he had been glad to dip his hat into the lake and drink the soft bog water, and then to lie at length among the heather. So intense was the silence that his thoughts were afraid to move, and he had lain, his eyes roving over boundless space, seeing nothing but the phantom's tops of mount distant mountains, the outer rim of the world, so they, so did they seem to him. At each end of the crescent-shaped lake there is a great can built of cyclopean stones, and into one of these cans he had descended, and he followed the passage leading into the heart of the mountains till he came upon a great boulder, which twenty men could not move, and which looked as if it had been hurled by some giant down there. Perchance to save the Druid mysteries from curious eyes, I said, and a great regret welled up in me that I had not been strong enough to climb the mountain with him. What have I missed, A.E.? Oh, what have I missed? And as if to console me for my weakness, he told me that he had made a drawing of a can, which he would show me as soon as we walked, reached Dandalk. All the while I was afraid to ask him if he had seen Finn, for if he had seen the hero plunge into the lake after the Queen's white limbs, I should have looked upon myself as among the most unfortunate of men. And it was a relief to hear that he had not seen Finn, such is the selfishness of men. He spoke of alien influences, and as we rode down the long roads under the deepening sky, we wondered how the powers of the material world could have reached as far as the sacred lake, violating even the mysterious silence that sings about the gods. That the silence of the lake had been violated was certain, 
for the trance that was beginning to gather had melted away, his eyes had opened in the knowledge that the gods were no longer by him, and seeing that the evening was gathering on the mountain, he had packed up his drawings. But the night will be starlit. If I had been able to get there, I shouldn't have minded waiting. Were you on the mountain now, you would be seeing that horned moon reflect in the crescent-shaped lake. It was faint-hearted of you. At that moment, two broad backs bicycling in front of us explained the sudden withdrawals of the gods. Two Christian wayfarers had been prowling, prowling the slip gully in and our wheels had not revolved many times before we had overtaken them. We meet again, sir, and your day has been a pleasant one, I hope. It has been very hot, he answered, too, for, too hot for slid gullion. We couldn't get more than halfway. It was my friend that sat down, overcome by the heat. A.E. began to laugh. What is your friend laughing at? And the story of how my f- strength had s- failed me at the third wall was told. I quite sympathise with you, said the one that had been overcome, like myself, by the heat. Did the poet get to the top? Yes, he did, I replied sharply. And did the view compensate you for the walk? There is no view, A.E. answered. Only a rim of pearl-coloured mountains, the edge of the world, they seemed in an intense silence. That isn't enough to climb a thousand feet for, said the chubbier of the two. But it wasn't for the view he went there, I replied indignantly, but for the gods. For the gods, and why not? Are there no gods but yours? My question was not answered, and at the end of an awkward silence we talked about the wonderful weather and the crops and ministers showing themselves to be such good fellows that when we came to the inn, A.E. proposed we should ask them to dine with us, a supper of ideas indeed it was, for... Before our dish of chops came to the table, they had learned that Slivgullion was the most celebrated mountain in all Celtic theology, the birthplace of many beautiful Gospels, A.E. said, leaning across the table so deep in his discourse that I could not do do else than insist on his finishing his chop before he unpacked his portfolio and showed the drawing he made of the crescent-shaped lake. He ate for a little while, but it was impossible to restrain him from telling how Finn had seen a fairy face rise above the waters of the lake and had plunged after it. When the Finn captured the nymph, and for how long he had enjoyed her, he did not tell, only that when Finn rose to the surface again, he was an old man, old as the mountains and the rocks of the world, but his youth was given back to him by enchantment. And of adventure, nothing remained except this snow-white hair, which was so beautiful and because him, and became him so well that it had not been restored to its original colour. It was on this mountain that Cuchulian had found the fabled horse, Lithmacher, and he told us, in language which still rings in my memory, of the great battle of the ford and the giant chivalry of the Ultonians. He spoke to us of their untamable manhood and of the exploits of Cuchulian and the children of Ruri, more admirable, he said, as types more noble and inspiring than the hierarchy of little saints who came later and cursed their memories. This last passage seemed to consolate the Presbyterians, they looked approvingly, but A.E.'s soul refused to recognise the miserable disputes of certain Christian sects. He was thinking of Kulain, the smith who lived in the mountain and who forged the Utonians their armour, and when that story had been related, he remembered that he had not told them of Mananan Maklir, the most remote and most spiritual of the Gaelic divinities, the most utmost god and the feast of age the druid counterpart of the mysteries and how anyone who partook of that feast became himself immortal it is a great grief to me that no single note was taken at the time of the extraordinary evening spent with a in 
the inn at Dundalk, eating hard chops and drinking stale beer. The fare was poor, but that, what thoughts and what eloquence a shorthand writer should have been by me. She is never with us when she should be. I might have gone to my room and taken notes, but no note was taken, alas. A change came into the faces of the Presbyterians as they listened to A.E., even with their attitudes seemed to become noble. A.E. did not see them. He was too absorbed in his ideas, but I saw them and thought the while of barren rocks that the sun gilds for a moment, and then, not satisfied with the simile, I thought, how... At midday, a ray finds its ways even into the darkest valley. We had remained in the valley of the senses. Our weak flesh had kept us there, but A.E. had ascended the mountain of spirit of the divine light was about him, and the mission was some men to enable their fellows to live beyond themselves. A.E. possesses his power in an extraordinary degree, and we were lifted above ourselves. My memory of that evening is one which time is powerless to efface, and though years have passed by, the moment is remembered when A.E. said that a religion must always be exotic, which takes a far-off land sacred rather than the earth underfoot, and then he denied that the genius of the Gale had ever owed any of its inspiration to priestly teaching, its own folk tales. Our talk is always reported incorrectly, and in these memories, A.E., there must be a great deal of myself. It sounds indeed so like myself that I hesitate to attribute this sentence to him, yet it seems to me that I can still hear him speaking it. The folk tales of Conort have ever lain nearer to the hearts of the people than those of Galilee. Whatever there is of worth in Celtic song and story is woven into them imagery handed down from the dim Druid ages, and did I not hear him say that soon the children of Erie, a new race, shall roll out their thoughts on the hillsides before your very doors, O priests, calling your flocks from your dark chapels and twilt sanctuaries to a temple not built with hands, sunlit, starlit, sweet with the odour and incense of earth from your altars, Call them to the altars of the hills, soon to be lit as up as of old, soon to be blazing torches of God over the land. These heroes I see emerging, have they not come forth in every land and race when there was need? Here too they will arise. My ears retain memories of this voice. When he cried, Ah, my darlings, you will have to fight and suffer. You must endure loneliness, the coldness of friends, the alienation of love, warmed only by the bright interior hope of your future. You must toil for, but may never see, letting the deed be its own reward, laying in dark places the foundations of that high and holy eerie of prophecy. The Isle of Enchantment, burning with druidic splendours, bright with immortal presences, with the face of the everlasting beauty looking in upon all its ways, divine with terrestrial mingling, till God and the world are one. But how much more eloquent were thy words than any that my memory recalls. Yet sometimes it seems to me that the, thy words have floated back almost as thou didst speak them, aggravating the calumny of the imperfect record. But for the record, to be perfect, the accent of thy voice and the light in thine eyes and the whole scene, the maculated tablecloth, the chops, everything would have to be reproduced. How vain is art that hour in the inn in Dork is lost forever, the drifting of the ministers to their beds. Faint indeed is the memory of their passing, so faint that it will be better not to accept, not to attempt to record it, but to pass on to another event, to the portrait which A.E. drew that evening, for, kept awake by the presences of the gods in the mountain, he said he must do a portrait 
of me, and the portrait is a better record of the dream that he brought down with him from the mountain than any words of mine. It hangs in the house of Galloway, and the clear of the work of the one who has been with God's word in my hair, I in their eyes, full of holy light. The portrait is exceeded in an hour, and even the work could, could not quell A's ardour. He would have sat up till morning and allowed him, telling me this theory of numbers, but I said, suppose we reserve that theory for tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is the blessing thereof. That's the end of whatever that was. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.